welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast with your hosts, Mike Gore, Jocelyn Gotto, and James Kazina. This podcast is an all-in-one devotional, essential for anyone trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in today's world. Each month, we'll release four different episodes, including stories from the field, preaching, and conversations with special guests. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. Here's today's episode. The Bible reading for this message comes from Matthew 25, verses 24 to 29, the parable of the bags of gold. From verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another, two bags, and to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It was our last evening in Central Asia, and tonight we were going to have dinner with some people I met on my first trip. I knew each of them had an incredible testimony and was eager to introduce them to the team. We arrive at a secret church and quickly were ushered from the street into the compound so as to draw as little attention to our presence as possible. We begin to walk over to the house and quickly glance someone cooking plov. He's bald, wearing a very red shirt, clearly had a life in prison which you can see from the small tattoo of a teardrop next to his eye, represents a sign of time spent in prison. He smells of cigarette smoke and sweat. We say a cursory and quick hello, but don't really stop to chat. Later, as we all sat eating dinner and sharing our own personal testimonies, we realized the one person who hadn't spoken yet was the cook. And to be honest, there's little evidence he will share. He has sat completely quietly all night, away from the group. But as we began to finish the night, he spoke up and started to tell his story. Unsurprisingly, he used to be a criminal, but his story of conversion and passion for Jesus is something I will never forget. 
He came to Jesus in 1995 through what he called a spiritual illness. At the time, he was a mullah, a leader of the Islamic faith and a self-professed terrorist. One day when he was praying to Allah, he saw a vision. He was in the desert and there were six people dressed in black pulling him towards a river of fire. The man had six chains on his body, one on his neck, two on his arms, two on his legs and one around his waist. As the man was pulled closer to the river of fire, he heard an endless number of voices screaming, do not come here. The man ignored the voices until one cut through the millions of others. It was the voice of his mother. She called her son by name and in anguish screamed, do not come here. As soon as the man heard this, he shouted no and all but one of the chains broke off his body. He fell to the ground and the men wearing black took those broken chains and began to beat him. He could feel his bones breaking and the skin on his back ripping open. He cried out for help but there was no one around. As the man lay on the ground, he looked up and in the distance, he saw a hill and on top of the hill was an old wooden cross and on the cross hung a man. The man on the cross was bleeding and there were two streams flowing from him, one of blood and one of water. As a man lay on the ground, he began to call out to the one on the cross, help me, please help me, and suddenly he left his cross, came down to the man and laid on top of him. The men wearing black now started beating this man and he told us his blood was shedding on him. After they had beaten the man from the cross, he stood up, stumbled forward, fell down and died. The first man asked, why have you died? Who will help me now? And suddenly the man who had died came back to life, stood up, walked towards the man and pulled him with such a strength that the last chain holding his body broke. And he said to him, I am Jesus and I died for you. Jesus then held the man's hand and led him away from the river of fire to a huge gate where a multitude of people were worshiping him. Jesus turned to the man and said, go and tell the others. And he replied, Jesus, even if they kill me, I will spend the rest of my life telling the world about you. I mean, think about it for a minute. You hear a story like that one, and doesn't part of you think or wonder, is that real? Is Jesus real? And I want to propose to you today that that is exactly what the parable of talents is about. The difference between knowing Jesus and knowing of Jesus. The difference between a trust-filled relationship with Jesus that drives you to action, a public expression of faith, versus a kind of head knowledge relationship with Jesus that results in a self-focused, protective, kind of private expression of faith. All right, let's dive in and look at it together. Many translations have got different names or titles for this parable. The parable of the bags of gold, the story about investment, the parable about financial stewardship. But as I referred to it a moment ago, it's most commonly known as the parable of the talents. Every blog I could find online focused on the financial side of the parable, the return on investment, and the ultimate blessing that the Lord wants to pour out in our lives. But I can't help but think when Jesus spoke in parables, they had a far deeper meaning than we possibly give them credit for. And I think this parable is one of the more misunderstood parables of Jesus. If we begin by looking at it situationally, the parable finds itself sandwiched between a parable about the ten virgins, Matthew 25, 1-13, which tells of how some of the women are not ready when the bridegroom, that is Jesus, returns. And the parable is followed in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, by a teaching from Jesus about the sheep and the goats, also referred to in some translations as the final judgment, a both beautiful and terrifying picture of the end times, where Jesus says, All the nations will be gathered in his presence. He will separate the sheep and the goats. The king will say, Come, you who are blessed by my father. 
Inherit the kingdom prepared for you, for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, and so on. The ones on his right will ask, when did we do this? And Jesus replies, when you help the least of these. And to the ones on his left, he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. He's starting to wonder, why on earth, between these two parables, one about people not being ready for Jesus' return, and one about what will happen when he returns, Jesus would teach on financial stewardship? Personally, it doesn't seem to make sense. So let's walk through the parable together and see what we find. The passage, well, it begins with Jesus describing a master going on a long journey. Let's not forget, only two chapters later, Jesus begins his journey of redemption for all mankind with his crucifixion. Could it be he's using the imagery of a master to describe himself? The parable continues with Jesus saying that the master calls his servants together. Similarly, we find Paul in Romans 1 and verse 1 referring to himself as a servant of Christ. In the parable, the master entrusts these servants with his wealth. And again in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, we also read that salvation is God's gift to us. So then in verse 19, it says, After a long time, the master returned and called these servants to give account. In Matthew 12, we find similar language when Jesus says, Everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've ever spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. You see, there's a consistency in language. And then finally, in verse 21, the master goes on to say to the servant who had invested the gift, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness, heaven. Are you starting to see how the sneaking suspicion that the point of this parable may be anything but financial management? And to be honest, I would feel far more comfortable if it was about money, because the alternative is both terrifying and inspiring. Terrifying as much as I don't want to admit it. If I'm honest with myself, I know I am the servant who has buried my talent, my responsibility, in the ground living a faith defined more by what Jesus should do for me than what he offers the world around me. And I've got a sneaking suspicion there are probably people listening to this today who feel exactly the same. But here's why it's also inspiring. I've spent the last 10 years working with the persecuted church, and they are not simply a cause that needs our help. They're a roadmap, a guide to what authentic faith in Jesus looks like. Let me ask you, have you ever stopped to think about why persecution exists? Wherever the gospel is being shared or invested persecution exists. It might seem strange because most charities you hear from, well, they talk about a world where the problem they exist to alleviate will no longer exist. Well, that's, I guess, the point where it all changes with Open Doors, because as an organisation, we're not here to end persecution. We're not even here to stop it growing. We're here to give people the strength to stand in the face of it and shine as brightly as they can for Jesus. Persecution is a consequence of successful Christianity. And by supporting the work of Open Doors, you're prolonging suffering for some, but you're also investing in the ongoing work of the Great Commission and empowering men, women, and children to remain courageously committed to sharing Jesus. It's one of the most exciting, inspiring, and important journeys you can take. The persecuted church. They invest their talents, and with that investment, it comes risk, hard work, cost, sacrifice, and reward. It reminds me of a brother I met in Indonesia, the largest Muslim nation on the planet. I was in Malang, East Java, meeting with persecuted believers. The restaurant was in a private room above a very busy street and, as is so typical in Indonesia, the afternoon or evening shower had just finished and the heat and humidity from the day began to subside and give way to this beautiful cool evening. We squeezed into the room and left a couple of our field contacts outside just to keep watch. 
As we ate dinner with these brothers, each one began to share their testimony. A small, wafer-thin and wiry Indonesian man began to share. The backstory to this brother is that he was a Muslim. In fact, he still calls himself a Muslim. His ID card clearly says he's a Muslim and he has no plans on changing that. He collects garbage for a living and tries to sell what he can from what he collects. He also draws out sand from the local riverbed and sells that. He tells us, It doesn't cover my family costs, but I rely on the Lord to deliver. He's married, has five children. In 2007, he was collecting garbage with his wife when a foreigner came to him and asked if he could pray for him, and he said okay. The foreigner then invited him to a Christmas service. In May 2008, he was asked to come to a baptism service, which he attended and ended up being baptised himself. Within one month of his conversion, he had converted seven families, not family members, families, in his wider family and on both sides. He tells us how each day he will rise early and go and collect garbage and sand until 1pm. He will then rest between 1 and 2pm and then goes and shares a gospel until 5 or 6pm, rests until 7pm and goes out again to share the gospel until 9pm. He does this every single day. He told me he's currently discipling 20 Muslim background believers and tomorrow he'll be secretly baptising four of them in a hotel swimming pool. He told me that he still goes to the mosque. I said to him, why is that? And he said, to evangelise, of course. It's why my ID card still says I'm a Muslim. And on Thursdays during the reciting of the Quran, he silently declares, there is no other God than Jesus. Touch their hearts and draw them to you. At a time with his brother drew to a close, he looked at me and said, well, part of the proof you believe in Christ is that you share him. Who have you told Jesus about lately? They were words that cut deep, true and devastatingly accurate, because the truth of it is, that I haven't shared Jesus with anyone lately. And I want to ask you today, listening, have you shared Jesus with anyone lately? If we think back to our parable, can you see how this brother has invested the talent, the responsibility given to him? And more than that, it came with risk, cost, hard work, little to no materialistic wealth or possessions, but for him, all of the comforts and safety of wealth fall a far distant second to sharing Jesus. I'm not saying that authentic faith and wealth can't coexist. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that unless Jesus can be seen or heard from your life, then I worry that we may very possibly be people who have buried our talent in the ground. For I've seen a lot of Christians survive persecution, but very few survive prosperity. Let's have a quick look at how Jesus responds to the servant who buried their faith in the ground. In verse 27 of the parable, Jesus says it would have been better for them to put the gift in the bank, for at least it would have yielded interest. So what does that mean? Well, what I believe Jesus is saying here is it would have been better if they had at the very least worked on developing their own faith, reading the Bible, praying. But when I look at my own life, I realize that not just for me, but for many Christians in the West, Bible reading, it's at an all-time low. And prayer, well, it's almost an inconvenience as opposed to a necessity And now marry that with one of the biggest challenges facing our culture, entitlement. In the moments of spiritual discipline, I have the audacity to believe that when I read my Bible and pray, that the Lord should reward me for my willingness to spend time focusing on Him. Don't get me wrong, it's not about how much you read or pray. In fact, I remember a good friend of mine saying, all that matters, Mike, is do you feel close to Jesus? Because anything else you're trying to do is faith by works. But he said, Mike... The catch is this, if you do feel close to Jesus, then you'll more than likely be driven to do the other two, read and pray. Let me quickly give you what I believe are three characteristics or behaviours of people who have buried their faith in the ground. Number one is judging others. Number two 
it's blame. And number three, it's jealousy. While the other servants were investing their responsibility, what was the one who buried it in the ground doing? The answer is nothing. Because when we're not putting our faith into action, life becomes boring. And the byproduct of boredom is often judgment, blame, and jealousy. I think one of the greatest risks for people who bury their faith in the ground is that some of the greatest persecutors of the modern church will inadvertently become Christians. Because we're so consumed with finding something to do that we spend most of our time querying and questioning the motive and action of others, dissecting sermons, story statements, judging, blaming, and criticizing. That's the danger with having our faith in the ground. We run the risk of becoming bored, distracted, and destructive to the church and those around us. In northern Iraq, we were standing in a church listening to a priest talk about the cost of faith in Iraq, and he was telling us how two of his closest friends used to lead a church in Baghdad, and in 2010, Al-Qaeda attacked their church, and his two friends were butchered in front of their own congregation, along with several men, women, and children. The priest mentions that the only thing he has left is the blood-soaked candle stands from the church, which are more than likely covered in the blood of his friends. He pauses and points out the candle stands and the stains that cover them. But as our conversation draws to a close, I begin to ask the priest some questions on faith, suffering, and what it means to follow Jesus. And I finish by asking the following question. Father, in Revelation, the Bible says that it's better to be hot or cold than lukewarm. Could you tell me what a lukewarm Christian looks like to you? He smiles to himself and says, that's easy. They're selfish. It's where faith becomes more about what Jesus should do for you than what Jesus offers the world around you. I spoke about this with one of our field workers and they told me, the West always seems to analyze everything and sometimes knowledge can lead people to condemn others. In Iraq, we have a simple faith that comes from the heart. Isn't that a beautiful insight? And truth be told, it's no different in our country. Faith, it's simple, but I believe we make it complex so we don't have to do it. We spend more time talking and debating about the idiosyncrasies of the gospel than actually living it out, visually or vocally. It would be wise for us to stop confusing activity with progress. As I sat with this thought, it reminded me of Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 17. And the thing I love about Paul is that he has had exactly the same exposure to Jesus as you or I. But the way he writes about Jesus is so vastly different to the relationship I have with Jesus. And what I mean by that is that Paul never met Jesus in the flesh. Think about it. They never ate together, never traveled together. They weren't childhood friends. In fact, it's unlikely they ever met before the Damascus Road transformation. And whether it was two decades after Jesus' death and resurrection or 2,000 years, it doesn't matter. You, I, and Paul have had exactly the same exposure to Jesus, which makes Paul's words in 2 Timothy all the more terrifying because it paints a bleak picture of the church today, a church characterized by selfishness and what Jesus should be doing for us as opposed to what he offers the world around us. It reads, and starting from verse 3, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. 
They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. Have you ever noticed that that passage tells us that evil people will flourish? That the bad guys will at times win? That injustice at times will lead to worldly success? The thing that I've learned through all of this is that there is a difference between the actual and the aspirational, the person you are and the person you desire to be. The scriptures, they serve as an aspirational goal for me. They're not condemning, they're life-giving. And I want to do all I can to break free from selfishness. And as A.W. Tozer said in Of God and Men, the fact is that we are not today producing saints. We are making converts to an ineffective type of Christianity that bears little resemblance to that of the New Testament. The average so-called Bible Christian in our times is but a wretched parody on true sainthood. Yet we put millions of dollars behind movements to perpetuate this degenerate form of religion and attack the man who dares to challenge the wisdom of it. Clearly, we must begin to produce better Christians. As we begin to bring this to a close, I want to tell you there is a cost to investing your responsibility because it will require hard work, blood, sweat, tears. It will require risk of embarrassment and a trust that Jesus is the one true God and the hope for humanity. In the parable we read, to one was given five, another two, and to one, one. As a point of clarification, I believe this relates to platform, not volume. So if you think through someone like Billy Graham, his platform, his reach, his influence, it was far greater than someone who may not have a public persona or platform like Billy Graham. Could also relate to things like physiological. For some people are great writers, speakers, performers, and some people face huge personal and physical challenges in life. Some will say it's a lot easier to be risk-taking with five than one, but the reality is not only is that untrue, I mean, Billy Graham had a lot more to lose than someone with less of a platform. But more than that, there was never a risk of losing it. Our faith that's secure, the only way, according to the scriptures, of losing it is to bury it in the ground and do nothing with it. I want to finish by reading you a letter from a young Rwandan pastor who was killed in 1980 when his tribe forced him to either renounce Christ or be killed. He refused to renounce Christ and was killed on the spot. The night before his death, this young pastor wrote a letter titled, the Fellowship of the Unashamed, which was found in his room following his death, a copy of which was given to a personal friend of mine. And it reads as follows. I'm part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colourless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, cheap living and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognised or praised or awarded, for I live by faith. 
lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by Holy Spirit power. He said, my face is set, my gate is fast, and my goal is heaven. My road may be narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Let me ask you, if you took Jesus out of your life tomorrow, what would change? Would people notice a difference? What is the trend line of your faith? Are you more passionate about Jesus than you were or less? Are your times of prayer getting stronger and longer or shorter and weaker? Is your Bible reading becoming more regular or less? To be clear, it's not about faith by work. It's about knowing Jesus. Because if praying is your chance to communicate with him, why wouldn't you? If reading your Bible is your opportunity to walk hand in hand with God himself through the Garden of Eden, why would you not do it every time and every chance you can? The Bible, it's the consistent character of God throughout millennia. So what's it going to take for us to dig our talent out of the ground and start doing something with it? Because when you and I are standing before him, what matters is not that you knew of him, it's that you truly knew him and the value he offered the world around you. So today, let's commit to digging our faith out of the ground and putting it to work. Thanks for listening to the Open Doors Live podcast with your hosts, Mike Gore, Jocelyn Gotto, and James Kazina. We hope the life-changing stories and lessons from the persecuted church help you follow Jesus, no matter the cost. To find out more, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. I'm your producer, Bethany Ross, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast.